Would you please stand with me as we read? Reading from Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the, in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The word of the Lord. Happy Easter to you, and I want to relay from Pastor Isaiah in India. He sent a note to all of us wishing us a very happy Easter, that we would uh, celebrate uh, the resurrection and enjoy the fellowship of uh, God's Spirit together. And so I wanted to pass along those wishes from him uh, to you. It's kind of fun for me to think about our relationship with the churches there and how they started celebrating Easter sometime last night. And we continue, but we share in the common worship of the one who is risen. As a church, we've been considering Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. And today the question we're taking up is the question that Paul will take up in his passage, which is, who do you trust and how do you know? And the components of trust that we're going to need to look at are hope, love, and power. Wherever you think you find love, hope, and power, that's a place where you will inevitably place your trust. Uh, I want to tell you the story of Harold Backer. Harold uh, was a kind of one of the kids who grew up in Vancouver, but was the pride of Vancouver, British Columbia. He was a good student. He was an outstanding athlete and particularly an outstanding rower. He would go to row for Princeton's prestigious team. He would also participate on three Olympic teams for Canada, winning a number of medals. And as he finished his MBA, he moved back to Vancouver where he had many family and friends and began to uh, and, uh, created a, an investment firm. He did financial advising. And he named uh, his investment firm uh, My Financial Backer, based a little play on his name. And things for some time seemed to go really well. Started around 93, and over time he built up an investment portfolio of many millions of dollars. That's why what happened in this past fall still remains somewhat mysterious to people who knew him. Uh, Backer went out for a bike ride on one morning in November, said to his wife that he was doing a trail nearby, one that he did often, and he was never seen again. He uh, 
That day, of course, as night fell, his wife becomes worried and alerts the authorities, and a massive manhunt ensues for him. But certain things start to come to light the next, the next day. Right? Um, his wife had put up a message on Facebook imploring everyone to look for him and contact her if, if he had been found, and that gets taken down. And the police find footage of him not going to the trail that he was known for. He actually lived on one of the many islands around Vancouver, and they had records and video footage of him getting on a ferry, riding to the city, and then he was last captured on a traffic cam somewhere in the city. The next day, his investors also started receiving letters, and the letters essentially said, I'm sorry. It said, in the dot-com crash, I lost everything. And rather than telling you I lost everything, I tried to make it up. I tried to make things work. And so I started paying, I uh, solicited new investors. I asked existing investors to give more. And I started paying them uh, out of old investors' money. And so in essence, he created a Ponzi or a pyramid scheme, right? And in a small way, he was Bernie Madoff. This only exponentially dug his hole. And the debt grew substantially until uh, just this past fall in 2015. He disappeared, and his disappearance is ambiguous. He hints at maybe taking his life in the letter, but people who know Harold say no way. Harold loved Harold too much to take his life. There's no body, and he left with a certain amount of preparation. And so those who know him are quite confident that he is, has had plastic surgery and is living in Panama where he had visited on a number of occasions and enjoyed being and hoped to set up a business one day. Walked away from a wife, kids. Imagine the the anger and the frustration amongst his family and friends. His coach was one of his biggest investors. Hundreds of thousands of dollars, entire nest eggs, uh, gone in a moment's notice. And uh, so, as you can imagine, people are frustrated and angry, the person Richard, uh, or Harold, uh, purported to be was not who he was. And I think sometimes, maybe more often than we'd like to admit, we, we feel very much that God is a lot like Harold Backer. The God comes and he's got this wonderful investment strategy for your life. And if you buy in with him, you'll get certain things in return. But as life goes on, those returns don't actually seem to be yielding. And so you wonder if, they're, if you've been sold a, uh, a Ponzi scheme. And maybe this has just been carried upon by the laurels of the saints over the ages who have talked about how good it is to trust in God. But for you and what you're experiencing and the chaos around you, it seems not so much. And so there's some anger, there's alienation, there's frustration. You know, this is what some of the believers in Ephesus had to be feeling. As persecution from Rome is increasing, as Paul sits in chains in Rome writing this letter, they're frustrated. Christ hasn't come back, and so they're starting to wonder, have we been sold a bill of goods? And Paul is concerned that they may start to walk away. And he says, he writes to them, and uh, as he's opening his letter, and we're still kind of in the opening of the letter, he prays for them. This beautiful pastoral prayer. It's a prayer that you should pray for one another. It's a prayer that, that we pray for you. That Paul would desire something much greater than the believers in Ephesians have access up to this point. And I think if we're going to put, you know, kind of paint and broad brushstrokes in terms of understanding what Paul has for the Ephesians, C.S. Lewis really hit the nail on the head when he observed 
about Christianity in the West in the 20th and now 21st century that most Christians, and by and large the church, is consumed with the idea of improvement. But the truth and hope of the gospel is actually transformation. We are content that uh, Jesus comes, and yes, he improves aspects of our life a bit, and then we wait for the end to come. And Lewis would say it totally misses the boat, and it doesn't tell the story of Jesus well to the world. Perhaps that's one of the reasons that the church in the West is dying, that we've settled for improvement rather than for transformation. Paul holds out transformation for us, and this is what we need to see in his prayer. As he opens in verses 17 and 18, Paul holds out uh, this notion that what he is desiring for the people has to be given by God. Only God can deliver uh, what is uh, this transformation. And so Paul writes that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. That's powerful language. Big, sweeping language. We would receive a, a spirit or the spirit of wisdom and revelation of God himself, that there would be an unveiling to us and that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened. Right? That's the language of transformation. That's the language of it's the language of enlightenment. Paul's praying for God to do something momentous. Do we really, um, when we think about what Paul is doing and how he talks about these things in the gospel, do we really aspire to or th- believe deeply that he's talking about something that would actually be utterly transformative? There's... Uh, a story that made me think about this in a certain way that appeared just this last week. It, it's a story on a, a dying um, class of person on the, in the Marshallese Islands. <laughs> that wasn't a very good intro. I wouldn't want to listen to that story. I have to think about how to rephrase that. But the story is good, I promise, so here it goes. Uh, so uh, in, in uh, the age of exploration, people wanted to get to the Spice Islands in the West. Right? Rare and exotic things existed there. And so Magellan is one of the first people to cross the Pacific Ocean. He says it's the most peaceful sea he's ever seen just before he gets stabbed to death in the Philippines. So there's a little tension in going to the West Indies. But uh, when they arrive, when Westerners arrive in the West Indies, they discover uh, a, a native group, indigenous people, who uh, are inexplicable in this sense. They, they paddle little canoes... And they don't have any compasses or charts or a way of taking stock of their location. And so uh, the sailors in the West say, how in the world did these people get here? Right? And so they concluded, you know, back in the 1500s, that God created those people there. That's the only way they could be there. And that, that idea essentially existed in some way, shape, or form, even up, really up until the 1960s, when DNA evidence, archaeological evidence, uh, and some discovery of their seafaring ways uh, resulted in, in people saying, oh, yeah, a long time ago, long before even the, um, Christ comes on the scene, people uh, navigated the seas and found this land. And the really fascinating part about these people on the Marshall Islands is there's a class of what is essentially a sailor, but he's called a remento. And remento means wave pilot. And these are the men who were entrusted with a secret knowledge of how to navigate the seas amongst the Marshallese people. They weren't allowed to share it with anyone, and only a remento could train a remento. 
You had to be certified by the guild, so to speak. Now, the Marshallese people had figured out something that we know scientifically, but we don't know the way they know it. And that is that huge swells form uh, around the Pacific Ocean. So in Alaska and California, in Antarctica, and in Indonesia. And these massive swells, which are essentially these giant waves, travel the Pacific, and then eventually they bump into the Marshallese Islands. Now, when they hit the Marshallese Islands, part of the wave bounces back like a sound vibration bouncing off the island. But the rest of the wave curls around the island and creates a certain kind of churn on the other side because the island breaks the flow of the wave. The Rementos had learned how to understand how far they are from land and where the nearest land is by virtue of the nature of the waves. Really remarkable. I mean, have you ever looked at the ocean and, and the chaos of the waves and thought, oh, I could learn to read something in that? And wave, uh, wave pilots have to be trained for years and years, and one of the chief, ways, chief aspects of their training is that they lay on their back in a canoe in the waves until they begin to feel the difference in the direction and size of the waves. And so it's this amazing secret knowledge that the Rementos know something about oceanography and um, navigation in, a, in a, a desperately intimate way that no one in the rest of the world really knows, and it's utterly dying. Uh, because largely because the younger Marshallese are becoming te- uh, dependent on Western technology and don't want to go through the arduous nature of learning to be a Rimento. Right? Now, our knowledge isn't secret, and we don't, we don't keep it all hunkered down from one generation to another, right? We like to tell our knowledge. But that, for me, is a picture of what Paul is talking about. It's a way, uh, it's an enlightenment of understanding the world with a depth and with an understanding that other people don't have. That's the kind of enlightenment of the eyes of your heart that Paul is talking about, that you would have a comprehension of God and this world and who you are and how God is working in this world that explains things far more deeply than anything else that the world has to offer. Of course, our knowledge is being lost too, and one of the reasons is we become dependent on everything that seems easier or quicker rather than actually being transformed in the way that Paul's talking about being transformed. So how do we understand this enlightenment? of the eyes of our heart. Paul's going to pray for three things, right? And they boil down to these these three, you know, one-word descriptions. First, hope. Second, love. And then power. How do we see it in the passage? If you look at verse 18, the first component that Paul prays for is that the people would know what is, the, uh, the church in Ephesus would know what is the hope to which he has called you. Now, hope is this notion that something is promised or guaranteed in the future. And therefore, you look to that, and it forms how you behave in the present. Right? That's what hope is. Now, as we go through each of these, I want to point up just a little way in which we sometimes misconceive what's really at hand and what Paul is talking about. Because when we start to talk about hope and we think about the story of Christ, even Easter, we think, yes, we have much hope. Christ has been risen from the dead. And in the future, that will be, that's our promise of something much better. And so our hope is, yeah, I'm going to be obedient or seek to be faithful now, but my hope exists on what's going to happen in the future. And that's not at all what Paul is talking about. Paul is talking and holding out a very real and present-day hope for the believers in Ephesus. It is not a hope simply based on exclusively what happens in the future, but it is a hope that is based on what happens 
every day. In fact, if you have a Bible, you can just turn the page over to chapter 4. And in verses 22 and 24, Paul writes to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And Paul is saying that now, not sometime in the future, the result of actually believing and being unified to Christ is that you have an old nature which is characterized by the things of this world, greed, sensuality, so on and so forth. He'll, we'll spend time unpacking them as we proceed through the letter. But he says right now that should be being put off and a new self should be, put, be putting on. You're renewed now. You are transformed now, not simply at some point in the future. Transformation begins at the point of faith. And so the first thing, if we're going to understand what Paul is after, is to understand that hope is not simply based on something exclusively in the future. Hope is based on something that's being worked out right now. The second thing Paul prays for. He asks that the believers in Ephesus, that they will know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, we often read this casually or quickly. We read it and say, oh, yes, inheritance, I know. I get everything that Jesus gets. I'm a co-inheritor or co-heir with him. And that's what Paul's talking about. We move on. And that is not what Paul is talking about. Whose inheritance are we talking about? What are the riches of his, God's, glorious inheritance in the saints? Paul is celebrating and pointing out to the Ephesian believers that God's inheritance is the saints. In other words, God's inheritance is you. This isn't about inheritance in terms of some kind of treasure that you get in the future. This is talking about what the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who lacks nothing, has elected to make you his treasured possession, his desire to inherit you. Are you loved? Yeah, I would say so. That for reasons that are fully beyond our comprehension or explanation, God has given up much to make sure that you are his inheritance. That you will be brought to completion. That means that everything that's going on in us and in the world around us, that sometimes we find it very difficult to understand, is part of him playing out that purpose. That we would be brought to fruition as his inheritance. And that demonstrates his love for us. So first Paul points out to us our hope. Secondly, he points out love. Thirdly, he points out power. In verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Well, what is this power? Paul goes on to say explicitly that it's demonstrated in the resurrection. It's demonstrated in that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. It's demonstrated that everything, both in this age and in the age to come, is placed at the feet of Jesus. You might think, well, bully for Jesus, right? It's pretty powerful language. A lot has happened that's really good for Jesus. But how do we really see this power demonstrated on, our, on your behalf? In other words, right, isn't there a tension that we confess, yes, all things have been placed at the feet of Jesus. And then you go through your week and the chaos there exists and your frustrations with everything that you're frustrated with. And you look at the insanity in the world And you have to step back and say, exactly what is under Jesus' feet? Exactly what is under his command? But this raises the question of power at large. 
And power was a big deal in the ancient city of Ephesus. In fact, one of the things that would be worth doing as we're going through Paul's letter to the Ephesians is to actually go and read Acts 19 and 20, which tells the stories of the time in which Paul was in Ephesus. You read stories of people being healed and demons being cast out. You read stories of uh, magicians who practice esoteric arts converting to Jesus and bringing all of their magic books, which were, uh, which were in, uh, worth a great deal of money and burning them. You read about um, almost uh, competitions um, in terms of Paul presenting the power of Christ and the other gods that exist also trying to demonstrate their power. The riot that comes as a result of the craftsmen and tra- uh, cra- <laughs> If you combine craftsmen and tradesmen, you say craftsmen, which isn't a word, I'm pretty sure. The craftsmen and tradesmen who lived in Ephesus made their living... Uh, it's a city that was largely devoted to Artemis of the Ephesians. That was the goddess they worshipped. And so people are converting to worship Christ, and they stop buying the trinkets, the shrines, to Artemis, which causes a significant drop in their revenue, which causes them to riot against Paul and the Christians there. Right? This is the, the power struggle that is playing out based on one's affinity to one god or another, to one power or another. And in the midst of this, Paul exhorts the people to remember the power of Christ even though they are in this battle and being challenged and even though Paul is in chains. And Paul can do that because he's got a different notion of power than we do. When we read about the glorious nature of God's power, we are very deeply trained to think of strength, to think of popping the heads off fire ants. That's power. Uncontested. That's not power in light of the gospel. If the greatest act of God's power, if his demonstration of victory over sin and death is the cross, then we are forced to rethink every notion of power that we have. And this is, of course, Paul's agenda. He writes in 5, 1 and 2, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We are called to be imitators of God. What does that mean? That we would walk in love. What does that look like? As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So power in the story of the gospel is not a demonstration of strength overtaking something. Right? That's not going to be the power of God displayed in your life, which is what you have a tendency to think and what you desire is that God's power in your life would make what, uh, what you want to happen come to happen in your life. The notion of power that Paul presents is, no, the more power of God you experience, the more your life will actually look like the cross. That may be unsettling to you, but that's what's on offer here. And if we promise something else in terms of what Christ is offering and being unified with him, we're not really talking about the gospel. We're talking about identifying with Jesus by virtue of the cross. Now, why would we want to do that? What's in it for us? I would hold that it's the most freeing thing in the world. Why? Let's talk about power for a minute in the lives of two people. The first person I want to tell you about is Sarah. Sarah is a girl who, uh, she grew up in a home in which her parents never were doing that well and were somewhat distant. And she spent most of her time playing with her cousins who lived uh, just two blocks down the street in the town that she grew up in. 
But as Sarah and her cousins began to enter adolescence, uh, her cousins began to watch things that they shouldn't have watched and pressured Sarah to watch those things with them. It wasn't long before watching those things became experimenting, and Sarah was exposed to things she never should have been exposed to at way too young an age. At 15, Sarah's dad left her mom for a secretary. And at 15, Sarah said, I know how to navigate life. I know that the way to protect yourself, I know the way to make sure that what happened to my mother never happens to me, is to make sure that I know how to keep and please a man. Well, you can guess how that went for Sarah. Uh, Through her 20s and into her 30s, Sarah had an unending string of broken relationships that typically over the course of her life got shorter and shorter and left her more and more empty. As Sarah began to despair, suffering depression for the lack of, of having received anything in the context of these relationships, through some friendships, she came back to the church and she started to think about Jesus and to... She was converted and started to grow. But an interesting thing happened for Sarah as she begins to process the gospel. She starts to think about the story of her life and laments where she finds herself in her late 30s. She thinks back over her story and she said, you know, why am I here? I love, that. I love the question why, and I love the question of why to why. And she says, why am I here? And she says, well, I'm here because... Um, I've made some bad decisions. Well, why have I made those bad decisions? Well, I've made these bad decisions because I was kind of predisposed to think this is the way I would find hope and love and power in this world. Well, why was I predisposed to that? I was predisposed to that because, well, I was really scared because my mom was, became a wreck and fell apart when my dad left. And before that, I was exposed to things that set me on a certain trajectory. So well, why did all that happen? And then Sarah got to, the, to where the rubber meets the road, which is, oh, God must have permitted it. Right? If we're going to say that God is sovereign, if God watches over all things, then God didn't intervene at any of these places. And so I find myself lonely and bitter and hurt in my late 30s as a result of what God permitted to go on in my story. And she raged against God. Furious. Right? Why not? I think she had a pretty good reason to be. Now, the person I want to compare Sarah to is Ed. Ed uh, grew up in, you know, from the outside, what might appear to be a pretty solid Christian household, son of a minister. His dad wasn't necessarily that emotionally available, but uh, it was kind of a household where, um, you you ever know that sometimes like a Christian household and a militaristic household can kind of converge. And so righteousness is obedience, and uh, what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. This is the kind of house that Ed grows up in. But Ed decides early on, he says, okay, the way you get through life, the way you have strength and hope and love is to um, power, is is to be obedient. And that's how you exercise control. And so Ed did okay. He went through college. He went to seminary and comes out of seminary, gets married, Starts working for the church, everything's going fine, and then Ed has his first child, and his child is born with a terminal illness and dies shortly, and not long after childbirth. And that, Ed didn't have any place to put that. Right? I've been obedient. Like, yeah, I know I have some sin, but if I compare myself to the rest of the world, I did really, really well. 
And this is what I get for all the years that I've sacrificed. And in all the ways I've put you in the church first, God, this is what happens. And so, but what does that do? He says, okay, well, you've permitted this. I must have to endure it and go through it, and I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to be obedient. So he doesn't get really mad. He decides that he just knows what he needs to do and keeps doing the thing that he's always been doing. And so Ed gets angrier and angrier. Over the next decade, there will be more and more fights with people in his congregation. He become alienated with the elders of the church. Eventually, the elders will ask him to resign. Ed leaves ministry, ends up declaring himself agnostic, selling insurance in Alabama, and dies relatively young of stomach cancer. And what is the difference between Sarah and Ed? Sarah ends up in a beautiful place. I didn't quite finish her story, right? But she draws very near to Christ and believes that she's utterly transformed. See, they both come to a moment in which they realize their systems of hope and love and power don't work. When Sarah gets to that place, right, hope, love, and power came to her through men. It doesn't work. And she confronts God and realizes her disappointment and frustration in him and the story that he's permitted. But then she realizes she doesn't then go back and say, well, I'm going to go back to men. She says, I realize that I have no hope, I have no love, and I have no power. And she throws herself at Jesus' feet, and that's where Jesus so often does his best work. Because what Ed does is Ed says, where I've thought to find hope and love and power hasn't worked because you've taken my child, so what am I going to do? I guess I need to obey more. Right? He goes back to his system, which isn't a person, of obedience so that he would find hope, love, and power. And he just becomes more alienated from God because our systems always are ways of holding God at arm's length. And this is the way that Sarah wakes up and Ed does not. Sarah tells the story better because when you look at stories like Sarah, Sarah tells the story better because when you look at Sarah's life, right, her old self actually dies and her new self is born. And in that you see the gospel. And in the story of Ed, his old self gets put on steroids. And of course, as a result, he moves away from God. This is the story that Paul in 5, 1 and 2 is saying, you're called to tell the story well. And we so often do not. We deviate from the story. Batman and Superman just came out, and I thought it would be a really fun Easter treat to ruin it for you. <laughs> no, so visitors are like, what? I have this very undeserved reputation of ruining movies, and it's really unfair, and it's been out for like two days. Uh, actually, I haven't seen it, so I can't ruin it for you, but it's been so badly uh, reviewed, I may save you $10. Um, no, but this is, this is the point. It's being badly reviewed, and in the reviews you get little plot points. And as I'm reading the plot points, I'm like, that's not the way the story's supposed to go. The reason I say that, I was a comic book nerd. And in the late 80s, a comic book came out that changed the genre. of It was the birth of the graphic novel. Frank Miller, who was then a young comic book artist uh, and would later go on to all kinds of fame in, in various spheres, uh, published uh, The Dark Knight Returns which is a story of Batman in his 60s 
who, in a Gotham that's gone to, uh, is in bad shape, he comes back, uh, dons the outfit again. And in the course of that story, he actually fights Superman for very good reasons. So that, that's, a, that's a brilliant story. If you have a first printing of that story, which was a fantastic story, it's worth uh, tens of thousands of dollars. Now, what they did was they took little pieces, threw it in a movie, which is basically, apparently, an extended trailer for all the DC movies that are about to come out. And so they totally left the good story, and now everyone hates the movie. We do that all the time with the gospel. There's this beautiful, outstanding story in which Paul says, you can be a wave pilot. You can know what, what real hope and real love and real power is. As your old self dies and your new self emerges. We say, well, that requires so much. My old self dying doesn't feel very good. And so I think I'm just going to be, put my toe in the water, but I'm going to hang back. And as a result, we mess up the whole story. Now, of course, we mess it up for the world, and that's a big deal, and we shouldn't dismiss that. But realize this morning, as you celebrate the resurrection, you you mess it up for your own heart. Do you feel that Jesus is distant? Do you feel like he's not powerful? Do you feel like he doesn't grant you any significant hope? Is it because you've misunderstood and not seriously dwelt upon what Paul is talking about in his letter to the Ephesians, which is hope is not for the future but is now. And God loves you to make you his own inheritance. And power is identifying with the cross and submitting your old self to death so that your new self might be made new. And it's in this that we understand the last verse of what Paul is writing, that we may be filled with him who fills all in all. Do you not desperately want to be filled with the love of Christ, with Christ himself? It comes through surrendering to Paul's vision of the gospel. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you today. We delight that you have been raised from the dead. We delight that the most beautiful story ever told of the one God in the history of the world who loves the world enough to sacrifice himself on its behalf, we only have the word love because of what you have done. So we worship you and praise you this morning and thank you that you enable us, allow us to come to this table and to receive your gifts, to be nourished by Christ himself. We give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen.